Lord, we thank you for the rains that we have seen in recent days and experienced. Certainly a new, a new experience for me in the Tri-Cities and a, a blessing of showers from heaven. But Lord, as we see these unusual rains, these blessings from heaven, Lord, it reminded me of a song. There shall be showers of blessing. And so, Lord, we do in this day when it seems so dry culturally and spiritually with so many weeds that are spreading across our nation and so much drought spiritually, culturally, morally. Lord, I pray that you would send your showers of blessing on our souls. Lord, blessings that would draw us to repentance. Blessings that would open our eyes to our own sinfulness. Blessings that would open our eyes to our neglect of worship and our neglect of your word. Blessings that would open our eyes to our lack of love for neighbor. Blessings that would open our eyes to our lack of evangelistic zeal. Blessings that would open our eyes for lack of zeal for missions. Blessings that would open our eyes to our lack of deep love for the Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you would pour out these showers of blessing, but and not only open our eyes to our sinfulness and our neglect of the things of God, but that these showers of blessing would turn our hearts towards you. And there would be a renewal, a refreshing, a revival of all of these things that would bear great fruit unto our God. Lord, that is our heart's desire. Lord, even as we read and have read about great revivals of old. Lord, I pray that once again that you would revive us, O oh Lord. Lord, I do pray for those who are grieving. We lift up Boyd to you, and we pray for he and his family as they grieve Joanne. Lord, I pray for their comfort and strength. Lord, we lift up the family of Dan Gray, and we ask for your spirit to give them great grace and comfort in these times. And Lord, we pray for us all that you would help us to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now as we open your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab a Bible and open it to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. We're going to have part 2 of what we talked about last Sunday, Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 through 26. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 and reading through verse 26, the end of the chapter. Then I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the king's successor be like? He will do what has already been done. And I realized there is an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. 
Yet I also knew that one fate comes to them both. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this is also futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise. Since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything is futile in the pursuit of the wind. I hated all my work that I labored under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. I, so I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For, who, for what does a person get with all his work and efforts that he labors out under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. There's nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand. Because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this passage in this text, even though it's hard, even though it's like turns our minds upside down and it's kind of hard to figure out. And even sometimes we may even be surprised that words such as this were inspired by the Holy Spirit to be put into Scripture. Lord, we know that this is given to us for our instruction and to give voice to what life is like in a fallen world so often. And so, Lord, we thank you that as we read this passage, we read it on this side of the cross, through the lens of Jesus, through the blessing that you came to free us from futility, from vanity. And so, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to bless us, bless our minds, bless our hearts as we consider these things today. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we considered whether pleasure can give you meaning in life. Can the pursuit of the American dream alone, apart from the Lord, the pleasures of this world, can that deliver a meaningful life? Can that deliver a meaningful existence? Is there meaning in laughter? Is there meaning in having a good time? Is there meaning in the party life? Is there meaning in hobbies? 
Is there meaning in projects, sexual experiences, music, food? We found that all of these indeed can be part of God's good gifts to us if employed according to God's will and God's design. But the temptation that all of us have ever since the Garden of Eden is to take God's good gifts and elevate them to ultimate things in our lives, to God things in our lives, small g God things in our lives, and those small g God things in our lives what God meant to be good things can become enslaving things can become idols in our lives these could be even called God's good but dangerous gifts because the constant temptation is to elevate them beyond their proper position in our souls So today we're going to consider two more aspects of the American dream. We're going to talk about knowledge and wisdom, and we're going to talk about work. Can you find meaning, ultimate meaning, in being smart, being worldly wise, in wisdom, or being a good leader? And can you find ultimate meaning in your work, in your work alone? And what is wrong with work? Do we get any clues in Ecclesiastes about the meaning of life? And are there any clues in this passage about what in the world is this author doing in this weird book, right? Some of y'all may have been thinking of that as I read this passage. This is strange. I did not expect to find something like this in the Bible. And yet there it is in black and white in the middle of the Old Testament. So are Is there any meaning in life? Is there any meaning in this world? Or is it all just chasing after the wind? Three aspects I want you to see in this text. Three points I want you to see out of this text today. First is this. Wisdom is better than foolishness. Praise God. Wisdom is better than foolishness. But wisdom alone cannot save in the end. It's not that that we ultimately trust. It is the source of wisdom in whom we trust. In fact, the very one who is wisdom. So after concluding, Solomon, after concluding that pleasure cannot deliver significance, Solomon turns to wisdom. And it begins in verse 12 by thinking about his successor. He's thinking about Rehoboam in this passage. And he says, look, Rehoboam, look, you're going to try to outdo me. You're not going to believe me that I have tried it all and you cannot find meaning in the things of this world. You cannot find meaning in the pursuit of pleasure, in the pursuit of projects, in the pursuit of making a great name for yourself. You will not find meaning there, but Rehoboam, you're not going to believe me and you're going to try to outdo me. I'm trying to warn you ahead of time and we just like Rehoboam so often take Solomon's words for granted and go our own way and say, yeah, but (laughs) you couldn't find meaning there, but I think I can. Yeah, Solomon, you couldn't find meaning in you fill in the blank, but you didn't even have this. It didn't exist in your day. And so therefore, I think that I can find ultimate meaning. I think I can find life in this. You fill in the blank for what it is in your soul, what your temptation is in your life. 
What is it in your life that you elevate above the Lord in your life that you raise it up to even God level? You might not use those words, but your heart, your desires reveal that this has become an idol in your life, something that you think is going to give you joy and life and pleasure and satisfaction and meaning. And yet Solomon is warning you here, you will try, but you will not find meaning there. Wisdom is valuable. Wisdom is learning from others, from their mistakes and their successes. Listen, Solomon is saying, learn from me. You don't have to do all of this. You can look at my example and you can learn from me what not to do and what to do in your life. Wisdom is learning from others and not having to make all of the mistakes that they made. Learning from the successes and the failures of others. Who can you learn from? Who can you learn from? First of all, you can, and the the indispensable thing we should learn from is from Scripture. I love what my brother said starting the service this morning. Sunday ought not to be the only time we open the book. Especially if our search is for wisdom, it's for Jesus, it's for righteousness. If Sunday is the only day we're opening the book, we are missing out on God's goodness and grace and His speaking into our lives and the Spirit's saturation of our lives through the Spirit-saturated, breathed words of God. We learn, first of all, from Scripture. We can learn from mentors, godly mentors in our lives. People who have gone before us, people who have been there and done that, and we can learn from their successes, we can learn from their mistakes, we can ask them good questions. What would you do differently if you had to do it over again? What would you do differently? What would you do the same? What have you learned in your life? Find someone you would like to emulate it. Ask them these questions. Learn from mentors. Learn from friends. Learn from someone discipling you. Ask people who are successful, somebody who is a step in front of you. Can you sit down with me for a little while? I'll buy you lunch and can you help me just in this area, in this thing? Can you give me some wisdom? And I know throughout this congregation there are many people who would be willing to answer that with an absolute yes. I would love to do that for you. I would love to tell you my story and I would love to warn you and encourage you and challenge you in these things. What are the most important lessons you have learned? How else can you learn from others? Like Solomon is calling his son, learn from me. How can you learn from others? Let me encourage you, read good biography. I think it is a tragedy of our age that we, the last time we open a book is when we graduate from school so often. Learn from good biographies. Christian biographies, missionary biographies. Know about Fanny Crosby like we mentioned earlier. Be encouraged by her life. Be encouraged by the lives of others throughout church history. I myself have been encouraged by the lives of of men like Andrew Murray and William Carey and, and others who have shaped and challenged my soul as they have as they have demonstrated sacrifice. And what it means to live a life for Jesus, even in the midst of hard times. What did they do well? What mistakes can you avoid? And learn from these 
men and women of history. Wisdom is so much better than the alternative. Look at verses 13 and 14. So verse 12, he's saying, follow my example, learn from me. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says there, wisdom is a lot better than the alternative. He says there, and I realize that there's an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. We know that wisdom is better than foolishness. It's better to be wise than to be stupid. And at least one of us has done plenty of stupid in their lives to testify that wisdom is better. Amen? <laughs> and I know I'm not the only, the only one. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks about in darkness. I remember, uh, I think it was last year, I went backpacking up in the blues and and I I had to wake up I woke up at about two o'clock in the morning and I needed to leave my tent to let the reader understand <laughs> and so I fumbled around in the tent and I could not find my flashlight I forgot to put it somewhere where I could find it easily and I couldn't locate it, and I said, ah, oh, forget it, I'm just going to go out. And unfortunately, that was a very dark night. There was not any moon, there was not any light out at that particular time in the evening. And so I get out of my tent, and I'm like, oh, I saw the area, I know what's going on out there. Oh, no. <laughs> I think there was a bear outside my tent that moved all the rocks and sticks around while I was asleep. <laughs> Because I got up and I walked through and, and, and I stubbed my toe on a rock and I tripped over a, a stump that was there. I'm like, I don't remember that being there. And, and, and I couldn't see a thing. It's like that when we try to navigate the ambiguities and the craziness of life without wisdom. It's like not having the lights on. It's like somebody rearranged the furniture in the middle of the night, or maybe you rearranged the furniture in the middle of the night, you for, or in the middle of the day, and in the middle of the night, you forgot that you moved the couch, and you stumble right over it. All of us have had that experience, and that is what life is like when we don't have wisdom. Wisdom is like having a light in a dark world. Wisdom is applied knowledge, and it is knowing how to navigate the often ambiguous situations of life in order to have the best outcomes of your life. It's wisdom from God that teaches you how to navigate the ambiguous situations in life, those kinds of situations that you might not be able to find an exact chapter and verse that explain exactly how to walk through that particular situation, but you have the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God leading you and guiding you along the paths of life. Now, Solomon here is still considering how wisdom works, especially remember the phrase that he keeps using over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. He's not yet thinking about eternity. He's talking about how to find meaning in this life. And he says, wisdom is better than folly. Street smart is better than stupid. It's better than that. Wisdom is better than foolishness. But... There is a great equalizer. The same end meets, at least under the sun, the wise and the foolish. What is that end? The end is that after the dash on your tombstone, both will have a date filled in. Both wise 
and foolish will one day die. Look at verses 15 through 17 again. At the end of verse 14, he says, I knew that one fate comes to them all. Then verse 15, he says, so I said to myself, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? I said to myself, this is futile. For just like the fool, there's no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it the wise person dies just like the fool? Can you see the pointlessness if this is all that there is? If this is all that there is, none of that matters, right? But you know the answer looking at through the eyes of the New Testament, through the eyes of the cross, amen? <laughs> it's true. If this life is all there is, who cares if you're wiser? Or, it's better to be wise, but it doesn't really matter in the end. Ah, unless this life isn't all that there is. Ah, we'll get to that here in a minute. Look at verse 17. He says, Therefore I hated life because of the work that was done under the sun was distressing for me, for everything is futile and chasing after the wind. Eventually the wise die, the foolish die, and the generation is forgotten. Most of us don't really know our great-great-grandparents, our great-great-great-grandparents. I have this incredible picture at my house of me and my dad, Randall Eugene Southern, and my grandpa, and my great-grandpa, and my great-great-grandpa. <laughs> I knew them all. Kay Pendleton Southern, Eugene Southern, Eugene Southern, Randall Eugene Southern, and Travis Lynn Southern. <laughs> My mom broke the trend <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> I, I knew my great-great-grandpa. At least I met him when I was a kid. I have a picture with him. But you know what? Other than his name, I don't really know a lot about Kay Pendleton Southern. I don't really know about Preston Ford Southern, my third, fourth-great-grandpa. I don't really know what he was like. What was his personality? What food did he like? Did he like ice cream? Did he like cake? Did he like, I, I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody remembers. Nobody in this generation, no, nobody in the previous generation remembers. You'd have to go back a couple of generations to find anybody who even knew him. You see what happens in life? This is what he is mourning about, is that eventually in this world, you will be forgotten. Being able to navigate life is well and good. It's better than foolishness. But, e but without eternity, wisdom and a good life doesn't matter. Can you see why? Trying to navigate this life without eternity is utter meaninglessness. Now, where do we find hope in this passage? Otherwise, we're going to go home and say, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die and everybody's going to forget. They're going to meet together at the church, go downstairs, eat potato salad, go home, and we'll be forgotten. Now, that was an encouraging sermon, right? <laughs> that's not very encouraging. Ah, but that's not the point of the Bible, is it? Wisdom is redeemed in Christ, in the cross of Christ. Something more can be gained by true wisdom and knowing Jesus than simply gaining a lot of good stuff in this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 says this, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Yes, 
Wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom alone can't save, except for true wisdom, who is a person, can save. Jesus Christ gives meaning to it all. You cannot find meaning in this life alone. The only place you can find meaning in wisdom is knowing the person who is wisdom incarnate, who himself speaks wisdom, lives wisdom, is the eternal wisdom of God. That is Jesus Christ, and he indeed is our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption. Now, how do you receive this righteousness, this being right with God, this sanctification, this growth and holiness, this redemption, that idea that, that Jesus is going to redeem our bodies and we will be resurrected from the grave and we will live forever and ever and ever and life under the sun isn't all there is. The good news of the gospel is this is a free gift of God that is received by faith. Wisdom is a free gift of God. Salvation is a free gift of God. Meaning in life is a free gift of God that is received by faith in the one who fulfills all of these things and who gives meaning to our existence and to our world. That is Jesus Christ. The one who lived a perfect life and perfect wisdom and yet he died on a cross for our sins and rose again from the grave. If you have never trusted in Christ, if you're trying to find meaning in this world, if you're trying to find meaning in knowledge, meaning in the university, meaning in wisdom in this world, meaning in philosophy, you will not find it there. You will only find meaning in life in the one who is wisdom incarnate, and that is in Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives meaning to it all. Wisdom and street smarts are really meaningless without Jesus at the center of it all. Only in Christ can you find meaning because only in Him can you find eternal life. Secondly, work is meaningless without Jesus. Work is meaningless without Jesus. Now, in verses 18 through 23, Solomon addresses the, the idea of work and saying, if this world all is, there, is all there, there is, then work is pointless because <laughs> you work and you make a lot of money and you die and you give it to somebody who doesn't appreciate it. <laughs> Sometimes I just want to go and give Solomon a hug. It'll be all right. <laughs> but that's what is, at least under the sun, conclusion is, unless somebody over the sun comes and gives meaning to our work in this meaningless world. That's an aspect of the gospel. We'll get to that here in a minute. But when did God create work? When did God create work? <laughs> Some people think work is a result of the fall. <laughs> and if God redeems us, when God redeems us and in heaven, we will have no more work because work is a result of the fall. Oh no, <laughs> you're mistaken about that. When did God create work? He created work before the fall. In fact, God for six days worked in his creation of the world. And on the seventh day, he rested. And when he created man in his image, humanity in his image, one of the aspects of his created being, this vice region over this world, this one created to steward this world, Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. That is before Genesis 3, the fall. That is in the perfect world. God created work as a good and blessed thing, as a good gift from his hands. 
Praise the Lord. Work is part of the purpose of humanity. And if you're worried about heaven being a place where there'll be nothing to do except sit around on a cloud and strum a harp, you are mistaken about what heaven is going to be like. It is going to be a city where you will have things to do except all of the sin and all of the curse will be removed and it will be the most fulfilling existence that you could ever, you can't even really imagine. Praise God. It's going to be a glorious place. God created humanity in his image. And part of that image is that we are workers. We are made to be productive with our lives, using our creativity, our talents, our gifts, and the unique, as unique images of God. We are to use all of these abilities to better the world, steward his creation, and ultimately glorify God's. And the New Testament is so serious about work, it basically says this, no worky, no eaty. (laughs) Isn't that true? We could use a good dose of that in our society, right? (laughs) No worky, no (laughs) eaty. My dad always told me that. (laughs) I took it seriously. So why why is work so hard, though? Why why is it that so oftentimes we get up and we're like, really? Oh, Again, what happens? Well, you know, Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, man sinned. Sin entered the world. All of Adam's progeny have inherited this sinful nature and the curse. Genesis three seventeen and 23 says this. He says, and he said to the man, after man had sinned, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. And so the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And so there we see the curse that is entered into the world. And the reason why work isn't so always fulfilling and why we struggle with it so often is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is under the curse of sin. Now, what does that cause in our work? We were made for for fulfilling work, but after the fall, this world and its work are under a curse. And what are some of the challenges that we face in our work lives? Well, you know those. We could have a testimony time right there, right? Some of the struggles we have. We see in our world an anemic work ethic coexisting with an undervaluing of work. I'm hearing reports from business owners who will have job openings and people people sign up for interviews and they get an interview and they never show up to their interview (laughs) and sometimes they never even show up to work and so we have that as an aspect of our fallen nature this lack of diligence lack of working hard but on the other end of the spectrum there's something else there's an overvaluing of work that takes the form of workaholism where rather than having this rhythm of work and rest that God has put into the very fabric of creation in his six days of work and his seventh day of rest, we live in a world and a nation especially that so values work that the more you work, the more you will be rewarded. But there is an end to that in exhaustion and effects on your family as well. 
There's a sense of alienation from corporate goals, often accompanied by resentment against the corporation as an employer. We see that in our souls. There's working for a corporation whose ethical standards have long been suspect. Any of you had to go to a training recently that you disagreed with everything that was said in that training? Anybody here at all? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure you have. Even when I was at the, in the world of uh, secular work and worked in the uh, petrochemical business, there were some times that I had to sit through some things and I'm like, oh my word, I don't, I don't buy any of this stuff. <laughs> and I know many of you have been there as well. Anxiety from job insecurity, viewing workers and work in economic terms as a means of production rather than as people made in the image of God. We see all of these. We see the horrific effects on families as well. Either on one end of the spectrum, people not willing to work, men not willing to work and to support their families and do due diligence and, and rather just kind of lazing around and their families suffer for that. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, especially in our community, we have people who work too much and work so hard they're never able to connect with their, with their families and do the work and then take on the role of father and husband we've heard that mentioned maybe you remember the song by harry chapman he writes he sang a song called cats in the cradle i won't read the whole song but let me give you a flavor for it he says my son turned 10 just the other day he said thanks for the ball dad come on let's play can you teach me to throw i said ha, not today i've got a lot to do that's okay and he he walked away but his smile never dimmed going to be just like him yeah i'm going to be like him and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon little boy blue and the man in the moon when you coming dad home when you coming home dad i don't know when we'll get together then we'll have a good time then and the boy grew up and that time never came and the son became just like the father it's the effect of sin on our work. We can see why Solomon would say in verse 18 that he hated work. Why is it so laborious? Why under the curse, under the sun, you retire, you work, you retire, you die, you leave somebody else. And then in verse 21 through 23, look at that. He says, when there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it. This is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all of his work and his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is futile. Work is good, but it makes a tyrannical God. And it cannot deliver meaning and purpose in this life. Remember, Solomon just used that phrase again that he uses 30 times in this book, under the sun. Guess what? Yes, if you're trying to find meaning in life in work alone, you will not find it. But the good news of the gospel is he gives us a person, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer who enters into our world, gives meaning to our existence, removes vanity from us, and he is the one who infuses our work with meaning because our work is not done for ourselves alone, but is done for 
for the glory of God's. And it makes it matters in the eyes of Jesus for all of eternity because under the sun is not all that there is. Look at Colossians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. He says this, Whatever you do, do it from your heart as something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you go to work, Yes, you work for P&L, but ultimately you work for Jesus. Praise the Lord. When you go to, when you go to work, you, 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 your paycheck might say Richland Public Schools, but ultimately it's the Lord Christ you are serving, and He will reward you forever and ever and ever and ever for your diligence in your work. Yes, if this world all is all that there is, your work really is meaningless because you're going to do it. It's not going to be always enjoyable. You're going to retire. Someday you're going to die, and that's it. But that's not the story. It doesn't have to be your story. The good news of the gospel is Jesus redeems it all. Jesus redeems even our work life and takes away the vanity and infuses it with meaning so all that we do can be done for the glory of God. That is really good news and can drive you to get up on Monday morning or Thursday morning and work hard for Jesus because you know He sees it and He will reward it. One of the things the pandemic taught us is that life consists more than possessions. Yes, work is important for living in this world, but life consists more and more than possessions. Invest your time into work, yes, but know the balance that there is of people, of investing in your family, of investing in your spouse, of being at home when you need to be home. I know there are times in lives when it gets crazy busy at work. I know what it's like to be an accountant in tax season, or at least a financial analyst in tax season. I know what that's like. I know some of you know what that, that's like. I know what it's like to be a teacher when it's finals week, and you've got to get all the grades in by the end of the week. I know that. And there is a season of where work is, is heavy, but... Make sure that season swings back. Take your vacation. Spend time with your family. Have that balance in your life. Finally, number three is this. Life and the American dream are, that should say, are, are meaningless without Jesus. Number three, life and the American dream are meaningless without Jesus. Look at verses 24 through 26. Let's read the end of this chapter once again. He says, There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand. First time we've seen God in a while in this book. Because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in his sight. This too is futile and a pursuit after the winds. Here, for the first time, really, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we get a ray of hope that there is meaning in this life. We get it in full view in the New Testament, but right here we see a little glimmer. So much so that Martin Luther said at the end of chapter 2, Martin Luther said the following of Ecclesiastes 2. He said, it is a remarkable passage, verses 24 through 26, a remarkable passage, one that explains everything preceding and following it. He says, it is the principal conclusion. In fact, in these three verses, we find the point of the whole book. I don't, I 100% agree with him because I think the point's in chapter 12. <laughs> but I think here we have 
a preview of the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, I think, is the real point in the book. In verse 24, he says, eat, drink, and enjoy your work. There are good gifts from God that we want to be in proper relationship with, that we don't elevate to idols in our lives, that we worship God and Him alone, and from Him, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we find meaning in the things of this world as we use them to glorify Jesus, as we use them to glorify God. And then in verse 26, it's the first time we've seen God in a while in Ecclesiastes. There we find God gifts, good gifts to those who are pleasing in His sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But if you don't know God, if you're a sinner, then He says, what you have will be taken away. Jesus says something very similar to that in a parable. But what is the problem? (laughs) There's two categories there. The person who is pleasing in his sight and the sinner. And the New Testament says, guess what category you're in and I'm in? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a really difficult situation we find ourselves in. A situation where we cannot save ourselves and that is the struggle of solomon how i can't save myself i am in desperate shape here and he is anticipating the new testament he's anticipating the arrival of the very one who could do what none of us could do and he saved us by living a perfect life dying on the cross for our sins rising again from the grave setting us free from sin setting us free from vanity setting us free to worship and serve the creator giving meaning to wisdom giving meaning to life giving meaning to pleasure giving meaning to this world as he becomes our all in all he truly is a comprehensive glorious savior and i ask you today do you know him Do you know him? And are you living your life for him? And are you having a life as a Christian where all of the stuff in the world is in its proper perspective, that all of it is in your life to give glory to Jesus, the one from whom all blessings flow, including meaning in life? I want to end today with a little math lesson, a little bit of math. Engineers are really excited right now. (laughs) Thankfully, there's no integrals or differentiation in this math. It's just plus and minus. I think this is the point of the passage from a New Testament perspective. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Or you could say meaninglessness or vanity. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You can try to gain the whole world, and if you lose your soul, it's vanity. But if you gain Jesus, you have everything you need. Let's pray, and then we'll spend a moment of silence, and then we'll have our response. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We thank you for your word. Lord, your word speaks to us, and I thank you for this passage that's here in the scripture. And I know many have struggled through these things and thought through these things, and thank you that you inspired Solomon to give words to these thoughts and realities. And Lord, we thank you that it doesn't end there, that the Bible doesn't end with hopelessness or meaninglessness, but it ends with Christ giving hope 
and our hopeless existence, that there's no way we could find meaning in this creation alone, that the Creator had to come and rescue us from our sin. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the one who is meaning, it gives meaning to it all, who is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would save them today, give them faith, help them to trust in you as Savior and Lord. And Lord, I pray for those who already know Christ as Savior and Lord, Lord, that you would help us to examine our souls, to see if anything is out of proportion, to see if there are idols lurking in our hearts where we would elevate above you and we would sacrifice those to you and Lord that we would press down put down the idols and put Christ as first place Lord we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives in Jesus name we pray